You are listening to Insights, produced by the University of New South Wales Law Society, a podcast dedicated to bring you an insight into law school, the legal profession, and legal issues. The production team would also like to show our respects and acknowledge the Bedigal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land, of elders past and present on which this podcast is made. Joining us today on the podcast from all the way in the US is Dr. Asaf Lubin. Dr. Lubin comes from Israel, first completing a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Laws at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. After attending Yale Law School for both his master's and doctorate degrees, he now focuses research on the intersection between law and technology, in particular regarding cybersecurity, information warfare, and internet governance. Dr. Asaf Lubin currently wears various academic hats, being an Associate Professor of Law at the Indiana University of Bloomington, an affiliated fellow at the Yale Law School's Information Society Project, a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and a visiting scholar at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Fetterman Cybersecurity Research Center. Thank you for joining us here today, Asaf. Thank you for having me. So um, just to get our audience to know you a bit better, um, you've clearly traveled to quite a few places around the world, coming from Jerusalem and now residing in the US and also traveling quite a bit within the US itself. Which has been your favorite place to, I guess, reside in? I don't know about reside in, but um, I'm, going to, I'm going to brown nose the host in saying that when I, was thir- when I turned 30, I did a road trip around Australia and New Zealand uh, for about a month and a half. Um, and we traveled anywhere from the Gold Coast and Brisbane to Sydney and Melbourne and also Queenstown in New Zealand. And that was certainly one of the best vacations I've ever had. And um, uh, my husband, who's never been to Australia, um, it's, a, it's one of our plans uh, for me to take him there and show him everything that I saw when I turned 30. Did you have any um, assumptions going into Australia or? Well, I, I had I had the kind of things that every tourist has, which is I want to I want to taste flat, flat whites. I want to uh, in you know, Melbourne, I want to see a kangaroo uh, and uh, uh, I wanted to go into a bar and say Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. So besides, besides those obvious things. Um, I, I really came open-minded and I, I guess surprised to realize how, uh, you know, once you travel to a bunch of Western countries, you start realizing that they're all the same in some respects. And so there's a, it's so easy to travel to Australia. I haven't lived in the UK and I haven't lived in the US and so on. The reason I asked that is because when I visited the US and it became very apparent to everyone around me that I was Australian, a lot of people seem to have very false impressions of what Australia is actually like. For example, for, for some reason, people actually think drop bears are a real animal. It was very, very shocking. Well, I, 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 for example, thought Tasmanian devils looked a particular way and they look nothing like the cartoon version. So like the, um, the Warner Brothers um, Tasmanian yeah. devil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, Another question that I had relating to your background as being a professor um, so here at UNSW Law, the professors always say there are no silly questions. What has been the most funniest question that you've had to answer in class? 
Well, um, so I research intelligence regulation and espionage, and I'm a foreigner, foreign, former intelligence analyst with the Israeli intelligence community. So I think the most uh, kind of funny or awkward or weird questions that I get are around that. Um, um, and, and they take various forms of, uh, like, have you ever killed a person? Uh, did you wear fedora hats uh, in your job? Was you, were you a member of the Mossad? What can you tell me about the Mossad? Uh, a lot of James Bond related questions in class, out of class. Um, it, it feels a lot like, like playing hot seat. Uh, and uh, the answer to all of those questions is unfortunately no. <laughs> I didn't kill anyone. I didn't wear fedora hats. I wasn't in the Mossad. It's a lot more boring uh, than the movies make it seem. My uh, French teacher, he used to be in the police force in uh, Paris. I think sometimes just to scare us into studying, he would uh, say, for, the, for example, he beat a man and he would do the exact same if we didn't do well in our final, which worked really well. So maybe you should actually say yes and lie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the old, old line the teachers say, I have, I have eyes in, in the back. Okay. I'm, I, I, have, I'm, I have eyes everywhere. I'm exactly. an, an intelligence officer. Yeah. And you should wear a fedora to hat. They are fashionable these days. As well. <laughs> I'll <Sure>. consider that. <laughs> um, talking about hats, actually, um, when you're not juggling all the different hats that you have to wear for your job, uh, what do you actually enjoy doing in your spare time? Um, I am obsessed with the Eurovision Song Contest. And, and I, I do mean obsessed. So... Um, uh, coming from Israel, I think um, it, it's pretty reasonable that is, as Israel is a participating country, uh, there will be this uh, excitement about it. We also just won a, a couple of years ago and, and hosted a competition. But here in the United States, it's extremely odd for people uh, that I will know all the songs that have ever participated, say, in the last decade, and uh, that I remember certain statistical data about who won what year and so on. Um, but I do, but you know, for teaching international law, it actually works really well to highlight this as an example of how countries can go from World War II to um, using music as a way to resolve disputes in a peaceful way. There's actually a few, I think, um, Eurovision songs that are becoming really popular again because of TikTok. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty guilty of uh, being very invested in TikTok these days myself. <laughs> But I think one of the, is the Israeli song that won a few years ago, the chicken song, if you remember. That's yeah, yeah. exactly. Meta. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that one of your favorite <laughs> songs or? Well, again, she, she won and she's from Israel. How can I not um, exactly. adore that? Uh, yeah, no, totally. Um, but we should talk about your TikTok obsession because you're giving all your data to the Chinese. That, um, that, that, that's a conversation right there. Um, I have relegated the fact that if uh, the local government is going to be collecting my data, I might as well give it as well to every other government out there. So <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, that's an approach. That's exactly. certainly an approach. As you, as you mentioned in your article, um, Blind Oracles, it's about giving everyone the ability to get as much information <laughs> as possible in order to have a bit of an impasse. <laughs> well, Until let me just say destruction. Yeah, I'll say this about that. Um, my approach about any new tech, and that could be um, a new app, or it can yeah. be a new Internet of Things, connected device, whatever, is that you really want to suss out what is it 
what is that's value to you and how much will it better your life? And if, if the marginal value is, if the value is only marginal, then consider that the har- the potential harms to privacy and data protection and cybersecurity yeah. could be quite vast in, in the aggregate sense. And so I don't know how, my, how many, um, especially people of your generation, I'm, I, I think I want I, I, I think I'm young, but I'm not that young. Um, do that balancing test every time they download a new app Um, for for two seconds, you know, just like the app that made you look old, that Russian app that stole all your data and gave it to AI generation in Russia. It serves um, a momentary um, excitement as you see what you look like when you're 60 and so much potential harm. Actually, just in regards to that, what is your kind of benchmark in terms of assessing whether or not something is worth it? It's easier for me to identify technologies that I don't. So I'll give you another example. People now implant chips into the palm of their hands so that they can swipe their hand in front of uh, doors to enter in lieu of taking it, you know, the the card um, out of their wallet, say, um, to do the same thing. And here's an example of where Oh my God, you have to take out your card from the wallet. What a horrendous um, uh, expectation. So, so there's like certain things that I don't think the, the, the value we gain from, in this case, a surgery, even if it's a relatively mild surgery. So surgery, so implants um, is exactly where one needs to engage in those analysis. And ultimately it's a subjective review yeah. Um, it's really about efficiency, quality of life, how much will it save you time or how much will it give you enjoyment um, is the kind of things that you should think about. But seriously. Yeah. Well, according to my phone usage, TikTok is currently at four hours a day. So maybe it is getting a bit more <laughs> but you worth see, it. One, one needs to distinguish between uh, enjoyment and obsession and, and like addiction. And, yeah. so, and it's not always clear which one it is. Um, I thought today we were uh, trying to uh, interview you, not about me and my TikTok addiction, but (laughs) we'll continue. (laughs) So a bit about your journey into um, the legal profession and also your legal academia. Uh, You currently hold three degrees, um, all of which are for law. What made you actually want to study law in the first place? I, uh, so as I was starting to say, I, when I turned 18, I joined the Israeli intelligence. I worked for them as an analyst for five years. Um, it was there that kind of um, really f- draw uh, interest into national security and foreign affairs. Um, and, and thought it would be really interesting for me to do an international relations degree. But um, being the son of a Polish Jewish mother, I, I come, came to my mom and I said I wanted to study IR. And she quickly said, that's not a professional degree. And it's fine. You can definitely do that as a minor or as a dual degree. But you need a professional degree. And at the time, I hated math. So anything with science was out of the question. Any numbers was out of the question. The, that really narrowed it down for me. Um, I kind of was left with law, um, but what really worked out well is that what I found out uh, within the first year of my law degree is that really what I was passionate about was not international relations. It's the intersection between international relations and law, which is international law. Um, It's the part of international relations that has some more um, 
um, doctrines and, 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 and analysis to it that is, you know, not just rooted in kind of IR theories that are subject to, to some degree of interpretation. And, you know, there's treaties and customs and rules and courts um, and institutional designs that I think I'm most drawn to. And that's kind of what I did ever since. Uh, experiencing a legal education in both Israel and the US, what would you say are the biggest differences between the two countries and their education? Well, first of all, let me say that there's a lot of similarities. Um, and that's because um, Israel is a partially common law country. And so we have the British mandate that was there um, before the creation of the state and that left significant imprints. Um, but we're also a hybrid um, jurisprudential um, uh, state because before that we had the, the Ottoman Empire. And so civil law was also uh, quite ingrained into, into the country. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of our professors go to the United States to, to take advanced degrees before coming back to Israel to become professors. And so they bring with them a lot of the classroom mentality that they um, um, experienced back in the United States. And so when I moved here and did my first, my first degree, my LLM at Yale Law School, a lot of what I experienced at the, at the classroom uh, was very similar to what uh, I experienced back home in terms of the, the, you know, the cold calling and the uh, exam styles and the questions and then the, the academically driven type um, discussions in class and so on. Um, but where we did differ has to do with the degree of formalism. Um, you know, it's common in Israel to see a professor show up into the class with sandals on. Uh, and that, that's because we're a Mediterranean country. No one wears a sweater and a blazer to law school. Um, whereas here, you know, everyone's so formal and we have the ways we approach the professor and uh, you need to read between the line. The professor will never be, you know, explicit with you. You need to understand when he's saying X, it actually means Y because that's the way, you know, elite <laughs> universities here in the, United, in the United States speak. Um, so those were the kind of cultural differences that um, I had to um, um, learn about uh, since moving here. What were also some of the challenges you faced moving to another country um, in order to pursue uh, your education? Well, the most obvious um, were vis visa and immigration. Um, so when you move to a place like that, you, you come in with very limited stability. Um, you get a guarantee that you will be there for a master's degree. So that's one year visa as a student visa. But then no one guarantees to you that you will be accepted to a doctoral degree. And so you, you move with all your stuff, essentially moving to a new country. And you don't know what the future will hold. Um, and each process like that requires further visa applications, further wait times, further procedures, further flying back home to be interviewed at the consulate. Um, all of those are complicated. Now add to that the financial instability that comes from doing advanced degrees abroad. Um, so again, you're delaying, you know, my, my friends from, from law school all went to become uh, associates at a law firm. They were all making money while I was still in a kind of prolonged seven-year process of taking advanced degrees. So there's, and, and no one guarantees to you that by the end of your doctoral degree, there will be a job for you. And oftentimes there isn't. Oftentimes you need to take postdoctoral 
positions, which I did. I took two different postdocs um, before I got a job as a law professor. So there's a lot of financial instability, a lot of uh, in, um, visa insecurity. Um, and ultimately, it's about building a community where you're um, a foreigner. Um, and, and, you know, it's maybe easy to do when you're joining a master's program where there's a cohort of master's students with you. But once you are advancing to an advanced degree, once you're looking for postdocs, those numbers dwindle down. And now it's about who, who are you fostering relationships with and how are you building a community for yourself? Now, I'm proud to say that when I did started my postdoc at Harvard, is when I met my husband who was finishing up his Harvard law degree um, as an American here. And ultimately after two years of dating, got married. And so um, um, uh, it, it can't happen, but it, you know, it was, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy about where I am now, but throughout the journey, there were a lot of moments of insecurity and fear and anxiety and, and concern. How come you decided to become an academic instead of following maybe some of your uh, colleagues and going down that road of becoming a big law associate? Yeah, I think it always rooted in the fact that I always wanted to be an educator. Um, so even when I was working for the Israeli intelligence, uh, a lot of what I did towards the latter years of my, uh, of my, my um, uh, service there was that I was running their training courses to new cadets. There's something about education that really draws me in. in. In fact, a little bit even more than the research, which I'm also happy to do. I think it's really great. But there's something about teaching that I'm really passionate about. Um, and so um, I think that if I wasn't an, a law professor, I'd probably be a high school teacher. Um, and it is for that reason that academia kind of naturally drew me in. Um, and, and, and it doesn't hurt that uh, it allows me to be a teacher about the things that I'm passionate about. So I'm still able to advocate for policy changes in my writing and in my classroom. Um, so I'm not giving up those topics that originally drew me in, but I'm doing it in an academic setting where, and, and, and let me, I'll be a, a, a little crude about it. There's something about a classroom environment where there's a captivated audience, they have to be there and I get to perfect a set. Ultimately, what is a classroom? I teach the same subject over and over again, year after year. I know exactly where my punchlines are and I keep, keep hitting them. So for me, I come in, I perform in front of a class. Uh, I get to engage with students who kind of th um, threw me off through me curveballs and off my, my off my script, and I get from time to time uh, to respond off the cuff. But but ultimately, it's a performative practice that I think is really exciting uh, for me. Now, just getting to a bit about your actual research. Um, your biography stated that your work is particularly inspired by your previous experience as an intelligent analyst with the Israeli Defense Force. Do you mind explaining what this role was and what it was like in the IDF? Yeah, um, in Israel, it's mandatory to do military service. And in lieu of uh, traditional military service, like my brother who was a tank commander, um, I was selected to go into intelligence. And what that meant uh, um, is that at the front end, I had to sign for longer. So instead of the traditional three years that boys do in the Israeli military, I did five years uh, as an intelligence analyst. And essentially what that meant is that I started with a six-month training course, 
where I focused on the particular countries of reference that I will be doing most of my work around. And if you know anything about the geopolitics of Israel, I'm sure you can imagine what kind of countries we might be studying. And so you really study everything about that country. You study their geography, their history, their culture, their language. Um, you will study their maps. You will know how to travel from point A to point B in that country. Um, you also focus on the particular organizations or unit or entities, uh, both in the government and in non-state actors that are relevant to um, um, particular issues of national security of concern to Israel. Um, and then the majority of your career will be spent in developing intelligence memos. So essentially you will be creating dossiers or briefs uh, addressing particular kinds of uh, issues raised by policymakers that are relevant for Israel's national security. Um, and it's an act of puzzle piecing. You'll be listening in to particular kind of intercepted communications, orally or texts or emails, and you'll try to put all of them together um, in a way that makes sense. And oftentimes, guess what? It doesn't make sense. It's like trying to put a, a puzzle together where you're missing two thirds of the pieces. So you, you get this general grid and you're trying to fill the gaps with what are inferences. Um, and I think that is the really hard part of what intelligence is about. Um, and there's all kinds of ways to do it in an effective way. It's really a, um, a trade craft that one needs to master. Um, it was, you know, doing that is really what um, uh, kind of thinking back about those five years is really what drove so much of my research ever since. Because I think there's so much about this practice that is A, unknown to many people, and B, kind of uh, walks the line of kind of varied ethical questions that I'm sure we can talk about if you're interested, um, that, that merits further conversation and research. For sure. Um, and as well, just a bit of a clarification question. How old were you when you first joined the IDF? 18. And so I, I left the IDF when I was 23 as an 18 year old, you are already basically intercepting communication. But you know, that's not as, at 18, Israeli boys and girls are tank commanders. They fly jets, yeah. you know, at 18 and 19 and 20. I was sitting in my office in Tel Aviv on civilian clothes, not even a uniform, uh, drinking my latte and listening into calls. Yes, I get it, it sounds, but, but you know, People were doing a lot more crazy things when you think about it that way. I mean, here in Australia, at the age of 18, we have a bit of um, a tradition where everyone goes up to the Gold Coast and get mm. absolutely hammered. So I guess <laughs> we're also doing very crazy things. Well, as well. let me say something about that, because many of my friends are American and, you know, they were at 18, they were joining college. And essentially, it's kind of the same thing, right? You go to college and you you get hammered at parties. And, um, and yes, I think that that process in Israel matures a lot of Israelis. But at the same time, I do think we miss something in that. Um, I think that I did not get to experience what might be a traditional 18-year-old experience. And so I am kind of jealous of, of that. Um, and during this time when you were part of the IDF and conducting that espionage, um, did you personally have any, I guess, moral questions that you were asking yourself? Or did you mainly? Not at the time. And I think that is what um, 
really focused so much of my thinking. So I don't recall a single conversation during my five years of service where we talked about anything concerning ethics, about what it means to spar on a person, rule of engagement. I don't, you know, put aside ethics. I don't remember a single conversation about law. Well, law applies to what we were doing. No one was talking to us, to us about the right to privacy, the right to data protection, the international covenant on civil and political rights. And it is because of that that I have focused so much of my time after um, finishing my time there, thinking more once I started studying the law about what now with, with my newfound um, vocabulary, what do I think about some of the operations that I did then? And it's not to say that I think that we ever crossed a, a clear black line, but it is to say that I think that there is a conversation lacking, in, at least in the Israeli intelligence, though in parentheses I will say that this is common across other intelligence agencies around, especially you know, with the rank and file, about ethics, about rules of engagement, about privacy, about surveillance, um, um, in a in a broader sense, and 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 so and that's really my doctoral dissertation. That's what I wrote my dissertation about. Uh, your first hand experience really comes through most of your papers. Um, so, what do you actually hope to achieve materialistically from your research? Yeah, um, I uh, first and foremost is um, I'm trying to um, generate a conversation where a conversation is lacking. It's just doesn't yeah. exist. So many international lawyers assume that spying is an extra legal construct that exists outside the realm of the law. It's neither legal nor illegal. It is uh, in that sense that they are um, essentially treating it under the same way that we might, might have in the past treated war. You know, Cicero said, when the cannons roar, the muses are silent. So we're now told that when, when the intelligence officers connive, the muses are silent. And I think that those kinds of arguments are um, not conducive to the kind of rule of law, human rights-centered environment that we're currently living in, in which in espionage has been um, you know, covered in, 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 in wrapping paper and put to the side um, as kind of excluded from this, from this movement, from this shift. Um, in, in, uh, in, in rule of law and legalism. And I think that that needs to change. Um, uh, and so a lot of my, my, my proposals and literature are about these kinds of policy regulation, but one that is done not from a naive kind of overtly optimistic idea about what the law should be. Now I spent five years working for an intelligence agency and then spent a year at Privacy International, an NGO that sues governments for their spying. So in a 10-year time span, I like to say that I've went from working for a spy agency to suing the spooks, and it gives me a unique voice that I hope is more centrist, um, that is often lacking in the conversation, which is the kind of the fights between security experts and privacy experts. Um, and I think that's the kind of um, centrist viewpoint that could generate uh, better regulation and better policy changes. With a lot of the research in relation to espionage and stuff, it seems very reactive just because um, innately the way espionage works is that you kind of want, in order to do your job well, you kind of not want to get caught. Um, how do you become, I guess, a bit more proactive um, in terms of, I guess, some of the policies that you could come up with? 
So two things about that. One is that I, I do challenge the premise a little bit. Um, it used to be the case that secrecy was this hindrance to our ability to regulate proactively. But I don't think we live in that world anymore. It's not the Cold War era anymore. Um, you know, we live in the age of intelligence legalism. That is to say that so much of the practice is now regulated with statutory regulation, first order rules. Um, you know, intelligence agencies are coming into the spotlight uh, because of um, uh, whistleblowing or because of freedom of information uh, requests or because of um, uh, um, certain mandatory disclosures um, uh, or simply because of constraint, peer constraints by other intelligence agencies. So for example, a famous case in the Court of Justice of the European Union is called Schrems, Schrems 1 and Schrems 2. Um, the case centers around a, um, a reluctance to share data from European um, centers to American centers because American intelligence regulation is subpar to the European equivalent. So lo and behold, a court of justice of the European Union is standing as an assessor of the quality of regulation of a sister state's intelligence apparatus. Um, and I think that that's fascinating and is the kind of a reflection of the, of, the, of the tides of the time that we're currently in. And so, so to challenge the premise, I do think that things are a lot more known than they used to be, uh, but that's only one part of it. The other part of it is to say, um, yes, I agree with you that sometimes our regulation would be reactive. Um, the way I describe it in my dissertation, it's almost like glitches into the matrix where intelligence is constantly around us. There's always intelligence operations, but we can't see it because we live in the matrix. But every now and again, there's these glitches, say a Snowden comes out, right? And dumps all this information or WikiLeaks comes out. And all of a sudden we get a glimpse into the other side. We get to see the machines that we're connected to quite literally. Uh, and it is in those moments that we have an opportunity to what I called a, a constitutive moment, an opportunity for an um, um, reactionary and expedited um, 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 uh, reshaping of our regulations to take into account new evolutions in surveillance technologies or new evolution in intelligence practices. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, with law being at times reactionary, so long, so long as we can seize on this political moment bring all the relevant actors together, you know, the rule prescribers and rule adjudicators and rule appliers, the NGOs and the academy and the judges to an opportunity to actually articulate something smart about what we've just witnessed. Um, and oftentimes these intelligence episodes are disclosed and no one says anything about them and they kind of uh, go away and we missed an opportunity to actually regulate affirmatively in that space. Uh, but just regarding that, would it be possible as well, uh, even if you seize the opportunity to regulate, that it is not until the next time one of those glitches in the matrix occurs again, that you actually see whether or not the regulation was taken positively or negatively? So, so, that, that, so, so partially the answer is yes, but it's also, 
when we say the word regulation, we should not necessarily adopt a purely formalistic idea of what regulation is. You don't need to think about regulation solely through the lens of, oh, here's a government rule adopted by statute and trickle down top bottom uh, to the relevant uh, regulated entities. You can also think about regulation taking different forms. Think about, I already mentioned um, uh, in, intelligence community uh, constraints. So if I, intelligence agency A, want to collaborate with intelligence agency B, intelligence agency B might tell me that you need to meet a certain threshold or bar or uh, do certain things a certain way for them to agree to collaborate with you. So they might bring you up to their level, thereby enhancing the human rights protective elements of your regulation simply by the way you engage in intelligence sharing. Now, we would not be, we, the public, who might not be aware of all of that, but that is still regulation. And so regulation takes various shapes and forms, and different entities might with greater or lesser exposure into the practice might be able to regulate in different times in different ways. So you can also think about oversight boards, all kinds of intelligence oversight entities whose job it is, is to engage in ex post review or ex ante authorizations. They can evolve over time, taking into account how practices changes and reacting to various disclosures as they come about. For sure. I think the best thing about having the, that formalistic approach is that it's something that everyone can kind of trust it, I guess, with the rule of law. It's formulated, it's articulate, everyone can kind of identify when someone has breached it. But when you're, I guess, giving, tr putting trust into the system itself and having all those boards and overseeing authorities, I think it requires citizens to have a lot more trust. So, so, so that is where I accept your premise. That is to say, Going back to your original question, yes, something is unique about intelligence, which by its very nature requires some degree of secrecy that we must accept also a broader non-formalistic expansion of our idea of how to best regulate this practice, given that we cannot just bring the entirety of it into the spotlight. If this was just criminal investigations and could have been regulated through the same way we, we regulate our criminal procedure system, then, then that would have been great. But that's precisely the reason why national security investigations are different than criminal investigations that requires us to expand our horizons about regulatory solutions. Um, do you have any particular stories about Australia's involvement in spying? I know you have a particularly interesting story from where we first met, actually. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful at least some of your audience are familiar with it. And if not, even after I finish telling the story, they should Google and learn more about it because it's one of my favorite spy stories of all time. And it has to do with Australia and East Timor. Um, East Timor is um, a tiny, tiny uh, island state. And um, for a very long time, they were subject to colonialism. Um, uh, um, and in 1999, um, after the UN pushes Indonesia out, it takes a little more until 2001, um, but after Portugal and after Indonesia, finally they gained their independence. And I was so excited. 
they want to um, exude that newfound independence in some way. And so they decide to build a presidential palace and cabinet offices. There's only one problem. You see a place like um, East Timor doesn't have the big shot architects and construction workers that can come and build this magnific magnificent <coughs> architectural feat. And so they rely on Australia to come in and through aid, uh, an aid program, assist in uh, erecting these, these um, architectural structures. Um, and what Australia doesn't tell the East Timorese is that they'll put a couple of their own intelligence officers into the mix so that they can place recording pods into the walls. Um, like you, you can already ask yourself right there and then why? What is it for Australia to waste so much manpower and man hours um, and, and risk you know, certain uh, reputational harms and embarrassment uh, in creating this program? And the answer is that there was gas in the East Timorese Sea and the Australians were aware of that and they wanted to make sure that the East Timorese didn't get it before they did. And lo and behold, a few years later, East Timor does find that gas in the East Timorese Sea, and they get so excited because it's their opportunity to finally extract some gas from the ocean, which they need because it's their first natural resource. There's only one problem, of course. They don't have the big shot um, um, gas extraction professionals who can come and take the gas out of the water. So guess what? They turn back to their friends from across the pond and asked the Australians to come sign a contract with them, an agreement whereby Australia will take some uh, extract of the gas and they will get a share of the uh, revenue and East Timor will be happy. Uh, and Australia says, we're happy with that, but if you don't mind, let's negotiate this treaty in your newly built presidential palaces and cabinet offices. Um, and during those three weeks of negotiations, the Australians constantly left the room and listened in to know what the East Timorese were saying, so to better their negotiations positions for the next day. So much so that by the end of the negotiations, um, East Timor agreed to lavish um, 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 allowances for the Australians, including a moratorium on searching for any more gas for the next 50 years and given huge proportions of the shares to the Australians. In 2011 or so, Agent K comes out of the Australian Intelligence Agency and says, I, come, I have to come clean. I'm like a Snowden. I have to uh, tell you, East Timor, we spied on you during treaty negotiations. And the East Timor is getting enraged. How dare you spy on us? Friends, don't spy on friends. We're going to sue you, Australia, and we'll take you to the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague because there's a clause in the treaty we signed that says that any dispute concerning this treaty can be uh, decided in um, arbitration in The Hague. There's only one problem, you see, East Timor doesn't have the big shot lawyers that can represent it before a court like that. Thank God Australia is just across the pond. So they decide to hire an Australian lawyer to represent them. At that point, Australia is like, oh my God, this is getting too easy. And they get a, a, a court order from, uh, for national security reasons to seize all the documents pertaining to the litigation from that lawyer, not to mention potentially even spying on that lawyer. East Timor gets enraged. How dare you seize the documents of our lawyer? We're going to sue you again. This time in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And for the first time, East Timor realizes that they can outsource to anywhere but Australia. And they decide to get a British lawyer to represent them in that case. Uh, and that case is one of the only cases that made it all the way to the ICJ that concerned 
espionage pure and simple. And in a provisional measure decision, the ICGA has some really interesting fun tidbits about espionage, especially in the dissenting opinions. Um, but I highlight this case to demonstrate an example of where a country is using its intelligence arm not for the purpose for which it was intended, which is to advance international security or national security. Australia in that context is spying to advance its own economic interests, to take away from um, post-colonial country, it's one and only natural resource. And I think that that is an example of what in my writing I have called an abuse of one's right to spy. Uh, so that's a paper in the Harvard International Law Journal called Liberty to Spy, where I discuss post-colonial abuses like that as one example of where the right might be misused. Whether or not it's the first time or the second time I hear that story, the punchlines just get me every single time. <laughs> Uh, just a few questions to just wrap things up um, in the end. Uh, being a policy advisor and researcher, uh, I just want to ask you as well, do you believe in the idea of a perfect system of law? No, um, I believe in, uh, I come from Yale Law School. I believe in the New Haven School approach to jurisprudence, which is a context-based, policy-based interdisciplinary approach. And essentially a great example of that comes from the sorry, for the writings of um, my, my doctoral supervisor, Professor W. Michael Wiesman, who likes to say that the law exists in the tension between the myth system and the operational code. You might think about that as the law existing in the tension between the law in the books and the law in action. So to assume that there is a perfect system of law is to assume that the law in the books is just what the law is and that we were able to create this perfectly defined terms and regulations in a civil law kind of mentality, very clearly defined rules, or that through uh, jurisprudential pursuits, through common law, we're able in the courts to define very clearly, easy to execute and follow laws. But the reality is that there are a set of rules that were created in our courts and created in uh, by our legislators. And then there's reality, the way individuals act. And the law exists in the tension between what the law says it is and what the practice actually is. Um, and sometimes we push further and further away from what the written law is to a point where we might say that the law has become um, the, a dead letter. Uh, or in other times, we might be defending that text, despite the fact that the text is nothing more than a myth. I think that looking at the, the law in, the, in this tension gives you a better sense of um, what is a more realistic version of the law with all of its imperfections. For sure. Uh, and one last comment as well. Um, is there anything uh, you're currently researching on or working on right now? Yeah, uh, so I'm uh, currently um, co-editing a book for the NATO um, uh, uh, Cybersecurity Center, the CCDCOE, um, which is a book um, about um, the application of the rights to privacy and data protection in times of armed conflict. Uh, so essentially, it's a collection of 15 articles um, or book chapters from scholars, both very seasoned and very junior, all asking the same question, how are the wars of the future going to be influenced by uh, emerging tech and emerging information 
capabilities, and whether or not the human, the digital human rights that we have um, developed frameworks for in peace times have anything to say about wartime uses of those technologies. So um, does a belligerent occupier, um, say Israel and Gaza and the Palestinian um, occupied territories uh, that is using biometric data or that is using CCTV cameras, what can we say about their obligations pertaining to that data, pertaining to the privacy of the inhabitants, given that the Geneva Conventions that we've talked about are from 1949, the, the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions are from 1977, pre-internet, um, is the kind of questions that we ask in this book. And I'm really, really excited about it. It will come out in um, May 2022 as part of the cyber conference, SciCon in Tallinn, Estonia. Um, it will be very exciting. Um, and is there any final comments or advice you want to give maybe law students out there who are interested in the cybersecurity, uh, espionage, and research field? Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. One is um, all I did was I studied international law. And I did that because I thought, here, I found my passion. And in retrospect, I think I made a mistake in doing that. I allowed myself to sit on my laurels. I got really good grades because I only studied the things that I loved but I missed opportunities to expand my horizons. I think once, once you identify particular passions and it could be cybersecurity or it can be national security or whatever, you wanna make sure that you find where those areas of the law intersect with broader general areas of the law. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things that I study right now um, and that I've written a lot about is cyber insurance. It's insurance for cyber, potential cyber harms. Now, this thing, insurance law, is something I never studied in law school. But in retrospect, I probably should have taken insurance. You know, it, at the time, it sounded like the most boring and dull class I could ever take. But in retrospect, now that I study torts and cyber, in the context of cyber harms and so on, um, uh, cyber offensive operations, Russia, China, wars, whatever, I started to realize that insurance law and the theory behind it could actually teach me a lot about how we can mitigate potential kinds of cybersecurity harms. And so in retrospect, I wish I took uh, insurance law in law school. And so this is what I'm trying to push you to think about. Think about where the, your, the things that you're interested in intersect with other areas of the law you might not be generally interested to study and make sure you, you utilize the most of your three years in law school because they go by, or four years, depending on where you are, because they go out really, really, really quickly. Thank you so much uh, for giving that advice and for giving also your time today. Thank you for listening to Insights by UNSW Law Society. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes.